episode 31, Patrick and Cyprian speak with Tim Hollebeek, industry technology strategist at Digicert. The team discuss symmetric and asymmetric cryptography, the future landscape of post-quantum cryptography, and the coexistence of classical and quantum-based computing systems. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Hi, Cyprian. How are you doing? Hi, Patrick. Very well. Looking forward for another great episode of Entangled Things. I don't think you're going to be disappointed. We're joined this morning by Tim. Tim, can you introduce yourself to our audience, please? Sure. I'm uh, Tim Hollebeek. I'm actually uh, chair of a bunch of standards groups that are working on stuff related to this. Uh, I actually have a little bit, it, it turns out uh, quantum cryptography and uh, this sort of stuff is actually uh, my favorite topic to talk about because I have a background both in uh, public key management and uh, also quantum uh, mechanics. I actually uh, started out uh, as a kid, learning basically how every single byte of a Commodore 64 works and programming it in assembly language when I was way too young to be doing that, to uh, producing numerically accurate uh, quantum simulations of quant complex three-body systems when I was at Princeton as a graduate student, uh, but then realized that uh, I was actually, I was passionate about computers and algorithms, and the people I was working with, they were very, very passionate about chemistry and things like that. And I was like, I'm a computer guy. So this was right during the dot-com era. So I, it was, I was able to have an opportunity to switch over to doing uh, DARPA-funded uh, computer security research. And so I did that for about 10 years until I got tired of writing grant proposals, uh, switched over to an encryption startup, uh, and then uh, ended up uh, getting acquired by a payment security company. And that's how I got into uh, asymmetric cryptography and key management for payment systems, how ATMs work, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so... The recent events have brought me back to my uh, understanding of quantum mechanics actually being useful, uh, and uh, especially now that quantum mechanics is actually uh, posing a threat to the uh, PKI systems I know and love. So it's actually very interesting that I get to do both things again. Oh, the timing is perfect to talk to you because um, you know NIST is about to release their guidance. They've got some finalists in in, in schemes that they're going to be releasing. Um, you know, there's still trying, still a lot of people didn't, don't know that this is a problem. So could you just summarize the problem that we're talking about as far as the discrete log problem without getting into too much math? Um, yeah. would you, would you like to summarize for our audience? Like what, what are we talking about? What is this uh, threat that quantum has towards public private key encryption? Right. So we have quantum computers. We're very excited about the good things they can do for society, like simulating chemical reactions, uh, helping, uh, helping us do drug discovery, you know, AI, all sorts of things. These computers can do things that other computers can't do. And that's very exciting. Um, but one of the things that was shown very early on was one of the very interesting things quantum computers is they're actually very good at solving two problems, two very thought to be very hard problems. They're very good at factoring numbers. And they're very good at solving the discrete log problem, um, which is basically just uh, trying to do logarithms over a discrete set. Uh, and so th how those work is actually not very important at all. Um, but the problem is those are the two mathemat hard mathematical problems that are used to uh, protect uh, crypto keys on the Internet anytime you're using what's called asymmetric cryptography. And it, the asymmetric cryptography allows two people to do very interesting things with respect to key management. 
Um, but the problem is that those only those problems only work if there's a hard math problem that uh, can't be solved. Uh, and so the problem is for these two problems, uh, the three log problem and factoring, uh, those happen to line up perfectly uh, with the two basic uh, asymmetric encryption algorithms we use, elliptic curve cryptography and RSA cryptography. And so what's going to happen once quantum computers are powerful enough to uh, break those algorithms is all of the asymmetric cryptography that we rely on uh, won't work anymore. Uh, because anybody with a quantum computer will be able to solve the hard problem that they're based on. And exactly. so the good news is we just basically picked the two worst hard math problems you could choose. Um, and partly it's actually kind of interesting from a mathematical point of view. The problem is they're based on finite periodic sets for people who would like really geeky stuff. Um, and so quantum computers are actually very good at solving problems with periodic math properties. And uh, both of these are actually very similar in that regard. And so all we need to do is change what hard math problem we were using. And this, the other hard math problems that you could use to do asymmetric cryptography were known for a long, long time. But nobody was really interested in them because we had two simple, fast ones, and they worked really well. Uh, so now everybody has gone back and dusted off the old research papers and said, let's uh, take some of these old ideas that we had that weren't really important. And let's actually go through the trouble of figuring out exactly how we can make sure that they're, you know, as robust as they need to be to be the next generation of asymmetric cryptography. Now, have have you been following what NIST is talking about and, and the uh, the different like NTRU and the other lattice um, mechanisms and things like that? Or are you more focused in other other uh, aspects of things? I follow that, but from my point of view, actually, it doesn't make a lot of difference which candidate NIST ends up finalizing on. Um, and the reason is because uh, all of them basically do the same thing. There's some kind of performance trade-offs and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but in my world, the hard part is figuring out how to take whatever NIST produces and then integrate it back into all of the crypto systems that are in the world today. There's We're literally talking about crypto in every single electronic device on the in the entire world, and it all needs to be upgraded. And well, so, go ahead. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, I it's something we've highlighted before, and, and you're right. But what you're talking about asymmetric, and one of the mm -hmm. things we want to draw a hard line with is symmetric versus asymmetric. And Absolutely. some systems, some systems do use just symmetric. But a lot of systems also kid themselves about the fact that they don't use asymmetric. And so one of the things that people have to do, and, and this is interesting because um, in the in the wake of the crypto, not crypto, in the cyber um, problem of log4j, which is something we haven't talked about on this podcast, but has involved me quite a bit in my life, um, the world is starting to wake up to the fact that they have to get into software bill of materials or SBOM. In other words, you need to know what you're running. So that when a vulnerability deep inside comes up, you know whether it's vulnerable so you can fix it. Log4j had a lot of us looking to see, are we running Log4j and where are we running Log4j so that it could be fixed? The same could now be said about symmetric versus asymmetric encryption. If you're running symmetric encryption, Grover's algorithm is a little bit of a vulnerability, but it only cuts it in half the time it takes to, to, to uh, attack it. So 10,000 years becomes 5,000. But where the real Achilles heel, the thing you're talking about is where they're using asymmetric, like RSA, Diffie-Hellman, elliptical curve. And a lot of organizations have a, 
they don't really know where that's being used because they don't understand the difference between those two cryptographies. Have you run into that? Is that something that, that we can help people understand? A little bit. And, and largely, uh, largely, and actually, the, the points you made are actually very good. They're points I actually talk about a lot uh, when I'm sort of evangelizing this stuff. Uh, you know, the software bill of materials is also, like in my world, uh, the one that I always think about that's closest to what could happen if a quantum computer comes out quickly was the Heartbleed uh, attack, where suddenly, you know, there was a flaw discovered in OpenSSL and you could just log in an, into an OpenSSL uh, server and uh, steal its private key directly out of memory. Right. Um, having a quantum computer has the same practical effect. Suddenly you have a private key that you shouldn't have. Um, and so there is so, sort of that confusion. Um, the All of the stuff around symmetric key, uh, symmetric key is uh, much more specialized. It's actually the symmetric key systems is what I started out with because payment networks, for example, are very, they traditionally were very heavily symmetric key. Your mm -hmm. ATMs, your credit card systems, they're all symmetric key. Um, but they actually... Uh, they used to send out uh, delivery vans with, you know, security people to physically inject keys into payment devices at the grocery store and things like that. And we've sort of moved away from that. So even payment systems have moved to where the initial key load is actually based on asymmetric. And exactly. then they use symmetric from there, there out. Uh, so the number one, the biggest point here is actually that these new NIST methods are not a drop-in replacement for RSA. Uh, they have different security properties. You know, there's separate key exchange and uh, encryption uh, and signing. So we're going to actually have to take all some of these systems apart and redesign the crypto and key management because you can't just drop in a, a post quantum algorithm into it. Uh, the key sizes are much larger. There's the security uh, uh, trade offs are just all very, very different. So uh, I work very closely with NCX9, for example, which is the uh, uh, standards organization for the uh, U.S. financial services uh, industry. Uh, and they're very interested in figuring out how do we get a head start on uh, standard. Once NIST is done, how do we get a head start on figuring out how do we take that algorithm and plug it into all the higher level algorithms that are used for bank cryptography? Yep. Uh, uh, so something Cyprian and I have talked about, and I'd love to get his take on this, is uh, Grover's algorithm is something that um, helps you break an asymmetric a symmetric key in in twice the time it takes a classical computer. Shor's algorithm is an algorithm that helps you break um, an asymmetric you know discrete log problem key in a fraction of a mere you know drop in the bucket hours versus trillions of years in classical computers. And so there's also a chance that there's going to be a new algorithm. That, that that comes out of the blue with quantum because quantum's a real quixotic thing. And so Cyprian, I know you're you're always thinking about algorithms and stuff, but it seems like algorithms are slow to develop. So what do you think the odds are that we're gonna um, get all this stuff done, get all this stuff ready, and then suddenly some professor is gonna say, oh wait, not so fast. It's it's quite interesting, Patrick, because there is one more thing here and and uh, I liked that that this was already mentioned in our discussion. Uh, we tend from the classical computing approach to look at problems as kind of uh, 
solid problems, right? But uh, take the example of, of factorization, right? Uh, quantum computing is not solving factorization per se, right? It's solving that part where we are uh, essentially reducing the problem of, of factoring into the problem of finding the period of a of a of a periodic function, right? So that level of complexity that I'm talking about is you could find that uh, out of the blue, so to speak, right? It's not that an entire problem gets a new solution with quantum, but one critical aspect of problem uh, of known problems right can be solved in a novel way with 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 quantum so i would say that threat quote unquote right is is uh clear and 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 present and uh uh on the other hand though and this is where where i i'd really like to 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 get teams teams uh input also is um while we do have these well-known algorithms, right? And we, we have the quantum algorithm zoo and everything. We are still not really up to speed in developing like uh, significantly new algorithms. And it, it seems like somehow, I wouldn't use the term stalled because I think that's too harsh, but we're not like on a algorithm spree right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's... What, what what is your take on 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 this? Because combined with what 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 Patrick mentioned, right? Uh, it's you never know when such an algorithm will will come out of the blue. Uh, but if you think about Grover and Shore, right? Those were decades in the making. They didn't really come out of the blue, so to speak. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. Uh, we basically know two uh, quantum algorithms uh, that exist. We know kind of their properties. But we have no idea, like from a first principles point of view, we have no idea why those two problems are particularly weak to uh, quantum computers. We don't, other than what I mentioned about, you know, periodic simple groups are a bad idea. Um, But what quantum computers can do, we sort of discovered the two that we know by accident. And so there are actually a lot of researchers working on what's a good mathematical foundation for figuring out what program, what uh, algorithms are weak to quantum computers, which ones aren't, what problems are. You know, there's a whole bunch of complexity theory, which is actually a really fascinating area of math, where you're trying to determine what are the set of problems that are amenable to a particular uh, solution. And the the set of problems that are uh, solvable faster by a quantum computer is is difficult to characterize. And I think there's a relatively low probability that somebody's going to come up with a new one that disrupts the world. But we can't prove they can't. It's kind of similar to the problem that we can't prove that AES is secure, for example, from a mathematical point of view. Never could. Yeah, yeah, never could. So uh, you know, we're using it because we're using it solely because uh, we, the best mathematicians in the world, looked at it for a long, long time in a in a contest that was right at the start of my career. Right, it's very similar to the NIST contest, and uh, nobody could break it. So we started using it, and it's performed extremely well. Actually, I think NIST did a great job on the AES contest, and watching from the sidelines on the PQC contest, I think they're doing a great uh, job again. I was actually very excited to be at the uh, PQC kickoff contest when they announced all this stuff and sort of wandering so, around and talking to everybody. So I, I have a little bit of a bone to pick with NIST. I, I, you know, I love their work. I think that they do great things. And I'm, I'm very I'm anxiously walk, watching what they're doing with their recommendations. Um, but their, their director of this, of this effort is a, looks like a you know, very, very smart guy. But he did a video that's still up on the NIST website that is well-intentioned, but I think misinformative. Uh, in the video, he says, 
you know, we need to get ready for this. I agree with that. This is a problem. I agree with that. But he says we have decades before it's a real problem. And my numbers don't show that. And so I really want to know your opinion. And, and I'll give you the baseline on where I, this comes from for me. In 2015, there was a paper that showed that two, a billion physical bits were going to be required to break an RSA 2048. We didn't have a billion qubits, so looked like it was a long time in the making. Four years later, that was modified by a, another document that said you only needed 20 million physical qubits because we had gone so far so fast, it dropped by a factor of 50. If a couple of years from now, we find out we only need a million qubits or half a million qubits, we're only, you know, IBM's talking about a thousand qubits by 20, the end of 2023. And so we're starting to get to this convergence between the number of physical qubits that are being released by these big manufacturers. And we're talking about universal quantum computers here, not, mm -hmm. and not D-Wave. Um, and and the, num the error correction and the tricks that we're using to implement Shor's algorithm, by my estimations, we're just a couple of innovations away from 2030 being the doomsday scenario. And I'm, I'm wondering whether, you know, somebody, you are exactly the right person to ask this. I, am I being hyperbolic or is NIST being a little bit, you know, less, a little bit overly um, assurative? It's a really interesting question for a bunch of reasons, actually. Uh, first of all, you have to be a little bit careful with uh, uh, qubit counting because of the fact that quality of the qubits makes a little bit of a difference, right? Um, the uh, if we get if somebody invents a really really good qubit, then the world is over at 512 qubits, which is a really small number because then you don't need error correction at all. You just run Shor's algorithm and you're done. Um, that I'm sure probably won't happen. I think some degree of error correction is required. Um, but you're right. Uh, it's basically an engineering problem at this point. Uh, one of the things, like, we don't understand a, a quantum uh, algorithm invention. We're also learning very quickly about uh, basically quantum um, uh, system design, right? How do you, you look at uh, when people were originally building microchips, you look at these very complex diagrams of how all the transistors have to be laid out on the chip in order to do something useful, right? We're kind of learning how do you architect a quantum computer? And yeah. that will continue to get better, right? And so I think uh, somewhere around 10 years plus or minus, you know, uh, maybe 10 to 20, somewhere in that range, I think is realistic. Um, and uh, the biggest problem, though, is especially if you're doing high assurance stuff, which in many of these use cases are, you have to take the worst case scenario into account and you have to take the amount of time it's going to take you to transition your systems into account. Um, so I think it's totally reasonable that there might be a quantum computer in 10 years. There might not. Uh, and this is a cryptographically relevant well, quantum computer, well, right? Given that, yep. now, you go, now you go to the next level, because I just talked to, I have a lot of people in the military I advise and talk to, and now it comes down to, do you have any secrets you would like to still be secret more than 10 years from now? Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, top secret, I think the baseline number is 30 years. Yeah. So, uh, so you should have started switching 20 years ago. Yeah. So it's, it's not the sky is falling. It's that it's, you know, some pretty, pretty big chunks of hail are about to come down on us. We, we're already behind the eight ball here. And that's the, that's the case for almost every major discovery. Um, but this is one that no one's talking about except for you and us I, and a few other people. Um, I'm hoping that this becomes a much more popular topic uh, very shortly.
Yeah, no, like, for example, you know, my, my day job is working at DigiCert, which is, you know, we do public key infrastructures, right? Asymmetric crypt- cryptography is fundamental to everything I do every day. Uh, so one of the reasons as that our head of standards that I'm watching this very closely is because this is a fundamental threat to the way we do things. Uh, our company is going to have to change the product, all of the products and services it provides to our customers over the next 10 years. And that's kind of a long time scale, but for some of them, um, like you mentioned, they're behind already. And the thing that scares me the most is the number of our customers who are not asking us about this question. Yeah. And they really should be. Or they, or they just don't know it's a question. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why I want to like, that's why I think what you guys are doing is great is because people think that this is just going to be like another of these SHA-1 to SHA-256 upgrades where it's like, okay, we're just going to replace a couple of things, you know, oh, we have to expand the database field by a factor of two. No, some of these algorithms are going to be fundamentally redesigned. Yeah. Now, I I really, I'm actually very comforted that DigiCert has someone like you thinking about this and dealing with this. And you've said, you've stated quite clearly that it's not something you can just plug and play. But is it possible that DigiCert can make some of their customers secure against this without them even noticing because you can slide this into a product that they're using and therefore they don't? you know, allocates more memory or it does something different. I've got to imagine that you guys are at least trying to figure out how to do it that way. Well, so there are a couple of challenges there. Um, And in particular, uh, the biggest problem is the reason people like uh, uh, asymmetric cryptography is allows you to build these public key infrastructures where you can trade keys between two people who have never met before, right? Mm -hmm. And so the entire purpose of our business is to help other technical companies securely interconnect with others. So there really is nothing we can unilaterally do on our own. And especially because of the fact, due to the high security nature of this industry, uh, we are uh, rigorously required to adhere to compliance standards from regulators and browser manufacturers and all sorts of people like that, you know, ATM regulations, federal regulations, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, And there's a lot of, the European market, by the way, uh, is really interesting for this because uh, unlike the U.S., which is still kind of very fond of, uh, you know, state your write your name in cursive in order to digitally sign this document, and we all you know pretend that that's actually good security practice. Uh, but the Europeans have actually gotten on board with integrating cryptography into their legal system and their financial system, and trying to write laws for how you sign uh, digital documents with uh, uh, keys and things like that. So uh, that sort of stuff. The uh, you know, we have to work together with everybody in order to solve this. Uh, it's, it's, and that's why I'm so heavily involved in standards. Figuring out how this is going to work for everybody is something everybody has to work together on. Yeah. So, it, I mean, I think even to describe it as the transition from IP version four to six sounds like a trivialization of it. It did. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's I, I, maybe it's like like moving from gas to electricity. It's, that's it's, actually yeah. That's more apt. Yeah. Uh, that's analogy is kind of my thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that gives people the right sense of things, right? And I think you're going to see the same thing, right? The two technologies are going to coexist for a long time. And, you know, uh, and so that's actually one of the hard problems is one of the things that we're looking at in digital certificates, for example, is, is it better? A digital certificate basically binds your identity to your public key, right? That's the basic function of a digital certificate. Uh, so that, you know, that Tim Holabeek's public key is this. And it's digitally signed by some competent uh, authority like us that tells you that uh, nobody's lying, right? That's basically what we do. 
And so the the problem is, okay, uh, I have my uh, I have my classical public key, but what if we also want to say Tim Palabik's uh, quantum safe public key is that? Do I need two certificates? In which case, now I have to deal with presenting the correct certificate to all the uh, associated systems, and uh, that's kind of the certificate management problem, which is known to be hard. Or do we uh, invent a new type of certificate that can have two keys? And a couple of organizations like X500 have already taken this approach, where now you can say, uh, this is Tim Holabeek. His classical key is this. His uh, post-quantum key is this. You please use it, which one ever one is appropriate. Um, and there are advantages and disadvantages to each approach for all of the systems where uh, keys are used. And unfortunately, there are a lot of uh, engineers fighting, as engineers tend to do, over which is the one true answer. Um, I think it's probably a little bit more complicated that there's some use cases where these so-called hybrid certificates that have two keys are the right answer. And there are some uh, other use cases where running two separate PKIs and trying to migrate people over uh, is the better answer. Uh, It's just kind of moving the complexity around. But we're still trying to figure out those sorts of problems of how do we redesign how uh, security works so that it works not just before the transition and after the transition, but it also has to work during the transition, which is actually the most complicated part. Yeah. And and I think this this highlights an, an even broader problem that we're not that focused yet because we're we're hearing a lot of discussions around when we will have quantum computing, do we have it, how we build it, and so forth. But I fully agree with you, Tim, for the foreseeable future. Classical will have to coexist with with, with quantum, and then we will have the the even larger problem of interfacing these kinds of uh, these kinds of systems, right? Not to mention, like uh, trivial again, quote unquote, like sending data to and from <laughs> these kind of these kinds of, of 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 systems, communication between these these types of systems, and we we already see right uh, situations like, for example, when uh, you are uh, striving to implement an optimization problem embedded into a quantum annealer, for example. This is uh, a good example of how to transform things. So I'd like to to, to get a little bit of, of, of your perspective on what do you think is or which are going to be some of these significant challenges of the coexistence in general between Classical, quant, uh, classical computing systems and, and quantum-based computing systems, because I don't think that we will live in a world where we can cleanly separate them. They will need to interact somehow and in some shape or form, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's actually one of the things that certificates do well. Uh, I actually uh, simpl- oversimplified them a little bit because uh, you know they have an identity bound to a public key. Um, but the other, all the other stuff that's in a certificate is actually management information of some sort or other, right? Uh, and so we're going to need a lot more of that uh, information just to s- start uh, giving people more insight into exactly how this key was generated, how it was used, what its provenance was. Because one of the most one of the most difficult problems in key management is uh, if I have a quantum safe key, but I send it to you over a non quantum safe channel, um, suddenly that key is compromised. But it looks like a perfectly legitimate key. And so simply checking that uh, the uh, key was generated with the appropriate algorithm and things like that is not sufficient. You actually have to have uh, good standards about how the key was generated, stored, transmitted, uh, what standards it complies with, uh, what it was audited under. Those sorts of information is actually very important. Hmm. 
So, so do you believe that the the new, and I keep going back to NIST because that's what mm-hmm. we're going to end up adopting here in this country, at least, um, that we're going to still have public private keys. It's just that the, what the keys protect will be, or, or the keys that are generated will be different. Yeah. Um, it, so it'll, it'll still look like the same. It'll still be a public private key infrastructure. It'll still, it, in other words, there's a lot of work for you and there's a lot of work for the network folks and, and those, but, um, it's going to look the same to the end u- to the consumer. It should be very uh, transparent to the end user. Um, we're going and we're basically going to have to make sure that we do that, uh, and that's why uh, that's actually where some of the most difficult challenges will be is where the algorithms have to be redesigned in order to provide the exact same uh, you know quality of service uh, that uh, end users expect. Because uh, some of the, in some cases, I mean, so so as an example of this. Uh, public keys are going to be substantially larger, right? And so, and not ridiculously so. So it's not like uh, modern computer systems can't handle them, uh, but it's the sort of thing where suddenly you might uh, start thinking about caching public keys for people, right? A little bit more aggressively than you would previously. Um, and that introduces some interesting privacy risks uh, because as soon as you start caching publicly, uh, public keys, uh, I can determine by whether you reach out for public key or not, whether you've used that public key before. So it will allow me to determine by sitting on the network uh, whether a visitor has visited this website before, whether they've sent an email to that person before. And that sort of traffic analysis is actually very dangerous uh, for a lot of systems. And so that way, I'm I'm mostly just finding out whether the key is changed and then I don't have to download it again. So if it's- Right, exactly. If it's a megabyte, are we talking about like a megabyte instead of a kilobyte? We're, we're talking we're talking about like tens of kilobytes and things like that. It's not hugely larger. Um, yeah. But yeah, but as soon as you start, and so that gives uh, a lot of systems as a design consideration now have to cache or not to cache. Uh, yeah. Should I be, you know, fetching every time for the privacy considerations or, uh, so, so it gets complicated. Something I've always noticed uh, in the, in the almost 30 years I've been doing this is, if I tell you you need twice as much RAM or CPU or any resource other than bandwidth, everyone's like, no problem. I'll just buy more. But it's tough to buy more bandwidth. Bandwidth is still the limiting factor, even though we, we, we talk about Moore's Law and we talk about computing power. It's really bandwidth that decides how we do things. Well, and uh, increasingly these days, latency, right? Um, yeah. You got satellite links and things like that. So that's actually kind of an interesting uh, having a TLS, con- yeah, having a TLS connection over a satellite link is actually kind of fun, but people do it all the time. You have to do a little bit of backflips, but it works. Yeah, that damn that that pesky speed of light problem. Yeah, <laughs> Einstein. Um, so so this has been super interesting. We still got a few more minutes, but uh, we're we're coming close to the end. What else do you want people to know? What what would be the most handy thing if you could let everyone in the country know something about this would it be something around that it's coming or something they should be doing to prepare for it or listen to our podcast no just kidding uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you actually there are a couple things i tell people to do all the time because i like to provide practical advice and actually uh especially for people who are involved in network security and things like that one of my top recommendations is actually Learn more about this issue and keep, uh, you know, keep abreast of the news. It's a fast-changing and 
uh, honestly, very entertaining area, right? So this is the most interesting uh, security news you'll be listening to for a while. So, you know, follow this topic because it's cool. Uh, and the other thing I tell people, though, is from from a practical thing, like you can tell your manager about why you're doing this and, and uh, other things you can do associated with the product project. As we mentioned, one of the biggest problems is going to be this transition. And most organizations aren't even sure everywhere where asymmetric cryptography is used throughout their organization and throughout their pro- products. Start creating an inventory list of where you use asymmetric cryptography and how. Uh, so that when you have to start thinking about upgrading it, you're not like, oh, we're starting from scratch. Yeah. And if necessary, learn to tell the difference. It's absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, learn, learn how the uh, crypto in your products works. Yeah. Uh, Cyprian, anything else that we should be talking yeah, one, about? One of, the, one of the areas that we didn't get to, to, to touch too much, we have discussed on the algorithms, right? And um uh what what about the 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 communications right it's uh uh one of the you already mentioned him right one of the 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 parts of this whole equation is uh sending right uh, the 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 keys and 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 things like 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 that and we see a lot of uh, excitement around also evolving uh standards and evolving research around uh, quantum protected uh, transmission environments as well, right? Which are kind of like a different thing than the quantum computers th- themselves. But how do you see that playing a role in the future infrastructure of, let's say, public keys infrastructures? It's not entirely clear. And that's actually a really fascinating topic that I can go on for a while about, actually. Um, but yeah, I think the most important thing uh, that people need to know about that is it's actually a completely different thing. Um, and both of them might be complementary. There are some, you know, there's some real complicated downsides to that uh, with having to have uh, out-of-band communication and having to have interrupted fiber links. I, I think where it works, it's going to be an interesting idea, especially for some very high security data links. Um, but one of the most interesting things is like, uh, you know, uh, the the existing systems work quite uh, quite uh, well and. Uh, the nicest thing about the algorithm-based post-quantum stuff is it's easier to layer onto our existing software systems. Uh, the thing about post-quantum cryptography, the most common misconception I get is that you need a quantum computer to do post-quantum cryptography, and you don't. Uh, the post-quantum crypto is just basic math. Right. All we're doing is swapping math problems. So it fits very well with our existing uh, computer systems. And it's a heavy lift to upgrade all of the software on the planet. But that's something we have to do because of security vulnerabilities anyway. So, yeah, and I think that that waiting for quantum crypto, waiting for quantum key distribution (QKD) to solve the Shor's algorithm problem is suicide because yep. <laughs> it, it's it's basically you know it works in the movies where the person is just about to get shot and then the shooter gets shot. It works every time in the movies, not so much in real life. So. Um, well, Tim, I think we're we're about out of time. It's been great talking to you. I learned uh, quite a bit, and and this is a topic I'm very passionate about. Um, I hope we get to talk to you again sometime soon. Sounds great. Uh, like I said, my favorite topic to talk about. Excellent. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks. Join us again next time. See you later.